Join me as we read God's Word together and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22. It was about four weeks ago that we last found ourselves in the Bible's book of beginnings. And we return today to our ongoing series of studies through Genesis to look at chapter 22 verse 20 through chapter 23 verse 20. And I hope you're continually amazed at God's providence and his kindness, even as he has planned out our studies together in his providential rule. Because we come to a text today that many people don't really know what to do with, but I trust we'll see as we continue to study it together this morning. We'll see how pertinent it is even to our time today in the midst of the hardship where we find ourselves. Because this is a text that's about hope in the midst of trial, hope in the midst even of death. And so let me give you a question to have in the back of your mind as I read the passage. It's a question that I trust will help get after the true meaning of this passage. And the question is this, why does Abraham care so much where Sarah is buried? So as I read the passage, have that question in the back of your mind. Why does Abraham care so much exactly where Sarah is buried, and I trust we'll be able to answer that question in our study this morning. So let us hear now as God speaks to us through his word. Now after these things, it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah has borne children to your brother Nahor, Uz his firstborn, Buzz his brother, Kemuel the father of Aram, Kesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel, Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight, Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Remuah, bore Tabah and Gaham and Tahash and Makah. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of Sarah's life. And Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan, And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord. You're a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choices of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. And Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me, and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he might give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It's at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in at the gate of his city. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. And Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. 
Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Let us bow in prayer together. Father, we are grateful that you are a God who makes promises to us, that you keep those promises in your everlasting faithfulness. Send us, we pray, the Spirit this morning that you might open our eyes to behold wondrous things from this word, that you might also open our hearts, that we would receive it in meekness and faith, in trust and repentance, desiring to follow you wherever the Spirit may lead. Help us to hear without distraction. Help us to respond with hearts of love and earnestness for me to preach as you, mu- you say that I must with clarity and with courage. As we think once again about our hope in the midst of death, help us to ever be ready for the coming of Christ, to be ever longing for the kingdom of Christ as we lean on the promise of Christ. And we pray all of these things in his name. Amen. One of my peculiar affinities, I guess, is a delight to visit cemeteries. I can be found often when the weather is nice and when ministry demands allow, going to a nearby cemetery. Often I prefer those that are kind of off in the country, off the beaten path, and I'll take my Bible and I'll take a good Christian book and I'll just read there for a morning or for an afternoon among the tombstones. And I, I do think it's helpful for me and my own personality and unique bent within the heart to meditate on the eternal hope that is ours in Jesus Christ surrounding by all of this vestige of, of death, and it's helpful to remember that life is indeed a, a vanishing vapor. It's this mist that blows away in the wind, and so inevitably, I'll kind of take a break from reading the pages that I have before me, and I'll just wander about the tombstones, and it's quite interesting to just look at the dates or the inscriptions that are on each tombstone and try to discern various stories that might be present in those individuals that are there laid to rest or those families that are there laid to rest, and recently I was out in the country near one of these kind of cemeteries that you don't really know that's out there, and it seemed to be full of family plots, you know, these kind of plots where the patriarch or the matriarch of the family died, And then eventually the other spouse was laid to rest next to the one that perished first. And in time, the kids were buried there next to their parents. And even in some of those plots, there were grandchildren buried next to those parents across many decades and even stretching a couple of centuries in this particular cemetery. And the reason that I tell you that is because what we come to today in our study through Genesis is the first cemetery in all the Bible. It's the burial of Sarah. It's the only time to this point in Genesis that we've seen someone buried, that we've seen someone put 
into a cave is actually where her tomb is going to be. And this cave of Machpelah is going to be something that's quite significant in the nation of Israel's history because the matriarch of the promise, the queen, if you will, of the covenant family, Sarah, she's laid to rest in this cave. And what we're going to find out as Genesis marches on, eventually Abraham's body, then Isaac and Rebekah, even Joseph's bones, Jacob's will eventually be brought back as well, laid to rest in this family plot, in the family cemetery, in the land of Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And so, if you were paying attention as I read the passage, you might have noticed the number of times that uh, the author mentions this word bury or buried or burial. If you just scan your eyes through the text, and kids, you could do it. Just go through the text and circle every time you see one of those words show up, bury, buried, or burial. And you should find it about 10 times in 20 verses. And that gives you the idea, really, about what this passage is all about. It's about Sarah's burial in the promised land. And it's that last phrase that's most significant when studying this text. It's not as though Sarah was just buried anywhere. She was buried in the promised land. If you look down again at chapter 23, you'll see we see this in verse 2, this bookending of the chapter, in the land of Canaan. And we're told the exact same thing in verse 19, that she was buried in the land of Canaan. She died in the promised land, and she was buried in the promised land. And we're going to think together why it is utterly significant that it was in the promised land that she was buried. But what we're going to see underneath even that theme of Sarah's burial in the promised land is, is an idea that we need to give our attention to, not just because of our current context, but certainly because of what the passage is trying to bring out to our spiritual heart this morning. It's the truth about the Christian's hope in the midst of death. Because what we're going to look at is Abraham really have this negotiation, but we're going to see him act as well. He's going to move about the land because of what his hope is in the midst of his wife's death. So scholars have often wondered about this passage. It seems to be somewhat of an oddity in the course of at least the story of Abraham because you know, don't you, as we've studied this passage, what we've seen in Abraham's life is decades might go by with any mention whatsoever of anything happening in Father Abraham's life. But here it's as though the story slows down. It's almost as though it comes to to a screeching halt as Sarah is buried. Of course, people have died already in Genesis. No one else has gotten a burial ceremony. No one else has gotten a plot negotiated for from the patriarchal leader. So it's a text that allows us to once again meditate on what indeed is our hope in the midst of death. My kids, I hope that You've thought about the truth of death before. You know, students, if Jesus doesn't return for a hundred years, you will certainly die. And the question then of Scripture so often isn't, will we die? But how will we die? Will our bodies go into the ground as our souls ascend to heaven in perfect happiness and holiness? Because of our hope in Jesus Christ. So what I want to consider with you mostly is just what chapter 23 is telling us. First of all, Abraham's loss and then Abraham's land. 
Abraham's loss and Abraham's land as we consider our hope in death. But we've got to begin with the context at the end of chapter 22. For notice what we're told in chapter 20, verse, I'm sorry, verse 20 of chapter 22. The author says, Now after these things it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah has borne children to your brother Nahor. Now kids, what are the these things that verse 20 mentions? Do you remember from so many weeks back what has just happened in the life of Abraham? Well, of course, if you just kind of scan your eyes up or maybe even turn the page, it's one of the most famous stories, not only in all the Bible, but Abraham's life in particular, as God came to Abraham and said, I want you to take your son, your only son, the son whom you love, and sacrifice him on an altar. And we saw that Abraham obeyed immediately. Abraham obeyed even completely as he, he raised the knife and his much muscles were twitching to make the downward plunge into Isaac's heart. And just in that moment, the angel of the Lord cried out, stop. Spoke to Abraham about his obedience. God provided the substitute ram. And then God went on to confirm, once again, his covenant promises. For notice what God said through the angel in verse 16 and 17 of chapter 22. Yahweh says, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you, that's Abraham, have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And after these things, after God tested Abraham, after God provided a substitute, after God spoke again his covenant promises, after these things, Abraham finds out that his brother Nahor has 12 sons. And you might wonder, well, what's the importance of Uncle Abraham having these 12 nephews. Well, the real importance at the end of chapter 22 is what's found in the parenthetical verse of chapter 23. If you'll notice there, it begins by saying, Bethuel fathered Rebekah. Now, students, I'm sure you know who Rebekah is. You need only look to one chapter past where we are today, chapter 24 of Genesis, to see Rebekah is soon going to be the bride of the son of promise, Isaac. And genealogies in Genesis often function as these kind of mini transition moments, as the story is going to move from one individual to the next, or it's going to move from one family to the next. And so what the story is signaling for us is the significance of Rebekah, that quite soon... Abraham and Sarah are going to no longer dominate this story, and instead it's going to be Isaac and Rebekah. And to give us even a signal of that transition, we get to Abraham's loss in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 23. For notice, Sarah has died. She lived 127 years, the text says. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And she died at Kiriath Arba in the land of Canaan. Now, as best I can tell, it was 62 years before her death that we met Sarah in Genesis chapter 11. And you might not know how significant Sarah was in the nation of Israel's history. You'll begin to see something of the significance when you realize that the age 
that she was at her death is the only time that such a woman is aged in this way in the book of Genesis. And quite long into the rest of Scripture, that she is the only woman who's said to be of a certain year when she died. This is how significant Sarah is. And if you wanted to know also how significant she was for the nation of Israel, you could turn to Isaiah chapter 51. When God is speaking to his people in exile, when he's wanting to comfort them, when he's wanting to console them, this is what he says in Isaiah 51 verse 2, look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him that I might bless him and multiply him for the Lord comforts Zion. If you want to know comfort according to the promises, the prophet says, look to Sarah. So it's why even then when you get to the New Testament, when Peter wants to give us an exemplar of what it means to be a Christian wife, who's the individual to whom he calls in 1 Peter 3, but Sarah, this significant figure across Scripture, and so surely you would know that Abraham was struggling over the death of his wife. Some people even don't think that's exactly true. I mean, Sarah lived 127 years. I mean, she was quite old and wasn't Abraham not that far behind her in his own death. Well, if you kind of scan your eyes over to even chapter 25 of Genesis, what you'll find out is almost 40 years pass between the death of Sarah and Abraham's death. He's going to have more children after she dies. There's a long time, decades that pass before Abraham is going to lie next to Sarah in this cave. And so surely there was something of mourning, weeping that fell upon Abraham, you'll notice, of course, that happened at the end of verse 2. He went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. One of the most well-known Presbyterian pastors on either side of the Atlantic during the 19th century was this preacher and author named Andrew Bonar. And after he died, his daughter took his diary and published it, and it became something of a classic of of Presbyterian devotion and Presbyterian piety. It's never gone out of print since it was published so many years ago. And the most moving entry that comes in that diary was on October 15th, 1864, when Andrew's beloved wife, Isabel, suddenly died. And that evening, he wrote in his journal, What a wound! Most suddenly, after three hours sinking, my dear Isabella was taken from me. Lord, pour in comfort, for I cannot. And I'm sure that must have been something of Abraham's emotion in this moment when his queen of the promise, Sarah, she's suddenly dying. Even the language of Abraham going in, he went in to mourn for Sarah has caused many people to think he actually was away from Sarah when she died. He was somehow away from the house when she suddenly and unexpectedly was at the end of her days. And surely many of you know the the pain that comes with this kind of a loss. Many of you know the sadness and the sorrow that belongs to the death of a loved one. You've had a parent die or a grandparent die. You've had a a different friend or another family member die. Some of you have even had, of course, a child die. Some of you, like Abraham, have had a spouse die. And what this man of faith is telling us, of course, is that grief over death is absolutely appropriate, isn't it? A Christian should, believers should, 
mourn and weep at the death of a loved one. You know, I'll never forget, I think it was five years ago at my previous church, one of our beloved church members suddenly died in his 50s of a heart attack. And I probably a few days later was preaching at his funeral and was rather teary-eyed in the midst of uh, losing this dear brother in Christ who had become a sweet friend to me. And I'll never forget how a church member, well-meaning of course, came up to me after the service and said with a pat on the back, don't worry, you're young. Eventually you won't cry at funerals anymore. And I said, I hope not. Because in the midst of our culture that turns funerals into little more than celebrations of life, it removes the reality of the biblical witness that says death is a terror. Death is an enemy. It's something that should cause us to grieve, maybe even mourn, maybe even weep. But of course, what Abraham is going to tell us and the New Testament even urges us in is that we grieve with hope. We don't grieve without faith. And so that's what we see as Abraham begins to move about in this scheme of negotiation over the plot of land. So we move from Abraham's loss to Abraham's land. For notice what he does in verse 3 and 4. He gets up. He goes to the Hittites and says in verse 4, I'm a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. So to get your mind around what really follows from verse 4 all the way through verse 16, you need to think of an ancient Near Eastern bargaining reality. This is a conversation of negotiation. What Abraham is going to do, he's going to go about bargaining, buying, and then burying in the next few verses. And even the conversation that ensues between Abraham and the Hittites, Abraham and this king of the Hittites, Ephron, is very much following the normal pattern of negotiation to some degree, still even in the Eastern world. So he's saying, hey, give me a place. I want property to bury my wife. Well, look at what the Hittites say in response in verse 6. Hear us, my Lord. You're a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choices of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Now, of course, on an initial surface reading, It sounds altogether kind and caring, doesn't it? The Hittites say, well, just take whatever you want. The choicest tomb, it's yours. No one's going to hold it back from you. But but you'll notice there's there's a subtle difference in what they're saying and what Abraham asked for. If you look again at verse 4, what he's wanting is property that he can buy. They're offering property that he can borrow. And there's a significant difference And so it's why he even is reasserting his case. You'll notice in verse 8 and 9, he says, Okay, if you're really willing to help me, that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It's at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. So he's saying, help me out with Ephron of Zohar. Ephron the Hittite is what the text will go on to say. And so what Abraham basically does is he moves from, if you will, negotiating with the minions of the Hittites to now he's got to negotiate with the chief boss of the Hittites. This is the firm iron fist ruler of the Hittites. For look at what verse 10 tells us. Ephron was already sitting there among the Hittites and he answers Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, all who went in at the gate of his city. So you might know that the 
city gates of the ancient world were the equivalent of the courthouse. This is where all legal business was conducted. But again, pay attention to the city, according to verse 10. It's his city. It's Ephron's city. He's the boss over all of these Hittites. And so you have a prince of God, Abraham, now coming to negotiate with the king of the Hittites. And he seems altogether kind and caring too, doesn't he? Look at verse 11. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Now, you might know that sometimes in the ancient world, oftentimes in the ancient Near Eastern world of negotiation, it began with this offer of a gift. I'll just give it to you. And there was always this expectation that the person who wanted it would respond with some type of of payment scale, whatever the cost might be that they would be willing uh, to pay for. But what you need to notice in, in this kind of hard negotiation that Ephron is trying to go about with Abraham is that he has subtly escalated the negotiating price. Because if you look at the previous verses, what Abraham, he really wants is the cave that's in the field. But then Ephron in verse 11 says, I give you the field. He's expanding out the actual matter for purchase. Thus, of course, driving up the cost. And Abraham is getting somewhat exasperated. For notice what he says in verse 13 in response to Ephron. He says, but if you will, hear me. I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead. So it's not just that Abraham's coming along and saying, no, I'll buy it from you. You could translate students, you want to see this kind of earnestness and perhaps even frustration in Abraham in this moment because you could translate the beginning of verse 13 to say, if you would just listen to me, I'm going to buy the field from you. Just let me buy it from you. Well, he's driving a hard bargain, Ephron, isn't he? Look at verse 15, my Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? What's 400 shekels of silver between friends? And almost certainly, any listening Hittite would have thought immediately in their minds, well, 400 shekels, that's a lot of money. That's a king's ransom according to the currency of the time for this tiny field. So it seems as though what Ephron is doing is saying, I'm going to set my price high, of course, expecting Abraham to negotiate it down. But Abraham's a man of wealth. He wants the property. So what does he do in verse 16? He goes from bargaining to buying. He just gives him the 400 shekels of silver. Weighs it out according to the merchant's measurements. And so he's got finally this piece of property. And so he goes from bargaining to buying to burying finally his wife. Look at verse 17 through 19. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, a field that was in the cave and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in to the gate of his city After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is in Hebron, the land of Canaan. It was made over to Abraham as property, verse 20 says. So this is where the true, I think, spiritual and even textual significance of what's happening in our passage comes to the forefront. And you can kind of signal its significance in a couple of different ways, one of which is the language of possession in verse 18. 
What Abraham gets here is possession in the land of Canaan, which if you even compare it to what we read earlier from Genesis 22, verse 17, it sounds a lot like God's promise that he was going to possess the gate of his enemies. So Abraham hasn't yet possessed the gate of his enemies, but it was at the gate of his enemies that he got a possession in the promised land. And that possession, if you kind of look through verse 17 through 20, it's got a fullness of detail, real careful detail according to the ancient Near Eastern custom. It reads almost like a real estate document from the ancient world. Very specific in mentioning what it was that Abraham purchased, where it was, this place of property. And it's emphasized again at the end of verse 19, its location in the land of Canaan. Which you could just substitute in by saying, Abraham got property in the promised land. And here's why that's significant. God, of course, promised Abraham the entire promised land. And he already has part of it. Do You see that God is already beginning to make good on his promises to Abraham. He, of course, doesn't have the entirety of the land, but he legitimately has part of it. It was as though he could take what this language in verse 17 through 20 says and hold it up almost as a deed of purchase. Look, this is my land. No longer am I merely just a stranger and sojourner in the land of the Hittites. I actually am an inhabitant, a citizen of the land of the Hittites. So, so know how this must have encouraged even its earliest original audience. You have the Israelites hearing this book of Genesis from Moses. They're on the way to the promised land. They too have heard the covenant promises, not only of people, but also of place, the promised land. Surely, as they're wandering through the wilderness, many of them are wondering if God's actually going to make good on his promises. Many of them, of course, they go in to spy out the country and they see it's full of giants, full of fierce rivals, mighty marching armies, and they wonder, can we really conquest these people, conquer them, and take over the land? And it's almost as though as they hear this story, what what Moses would have been doing as a good leader is reminding them, You already have part of it. When you wonder if God can bring the fullness of his promises to pass, know that God already has given you a title to the land. Know already, of course, as the story continues, that the bones of all the patriarchs, they're already in the promised land because this is the land of God's people. And so what what Abraham is apparently doing is wanting to buy promised land for his wife Sarah because he knows that actually is his homeland. He's trusting in hope and faith that even long after she's gone, long after he's gone, God will make good on his promises to make this their home. That's why Sarah's burial in the promised land is so important. This is Abraham's hope in the midst of death, hope in God's promise. It was in 1761, New Year's Day, 1761, that the president of the College of New Jersey, which you may know has become world famous as Princeton University, uh, the president of the college, Samuel Davies, preached a New Year's Day sermon. This used to happen in all kinds of churches throughout America. There would always be a special meeting for worship and preaching on New Year's Day. And as preachers were prone to do in that different time, due to 
you know, the reality of suffering and hardship, but to some degree even, I'm sure, the gravity of their hearts. He took as his text that day, Jeremiah chapter 28, verse 16, which says this to God's people. Therefore, says the Lord, behold, I will remove you from the face of the earth. This year you shall die. And so, Davies titled the sermon, This very year you are going to die. And he took as his doctrine, It's not only possible, but highly probable, that death may meet some of us within the compass of this year. And almost prophetically, a month later, Davies himself died of pneumonia after a brief time leading that institution. This very year, you are going to die. Of course, all of us would agree with just one subtle change to that title. Taken from that text. This very year, you might die. This very year, Sarah dies. That very year, Sarah is buried. You know, parents, I hope that you are not insulating your children from the reality of death. That's the way of the world, isn't it? To try to shun it aside, to skip over those scenes in movies, to pass by the chapters that speak about death because it's too dark, it's too difficult for young minds. But you do know it's true, don't you? This very year, no matter your age, you might die. And what then will sustain us in hope in the midst of living and dying? What will sustain us in faith as we continue on the journey towards heaven? I want to try to think more specifically here at the end as we begin to close about the Christian's hope in death. What kind of a hope it is according to our passage. I think there are two simple things that we can mention according to chapter 23 about the Christian's hope in death. First of all, it's the hope of a pilgrim. The hope of a pilgrim. Look again at verse 4. Abraham says, I'm a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Uh, You might know how this becomes not only incredibly important to the identity of God's people in the Old Testament, but also incredibly important to all Christians throughout all ages. Because when the author to the Hebrews begins to think about Abraham and Sarah as these models of faith, It begins to take in, actually, this passage in Genesis 23. They died in faith, chapter 11, verse 13 and following says. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak like this make it clear that they are seeking a better homeland. The hope of a pilgrim is this in the face of death. This life is not the end. This world is not our home. We're looking forward to a better country. We're longing for a better kingdom. And I wonder if even recent weeks as we have had these shelter-in-place orders, there have been constant flurry of headlines that seemingly want to drive the masses to fear and anxiety. If one of the things that God might be doing within all of us is helping us recognize the degree to which we're holding on to life here, thinking 
This is our home. This is our comfort. This is our security. The hope of a Christian in the midst of death is a pilgrim hope that says, no, this isn't our home. No, this isn't our comfort. We're looking forward to something much better. Something that actually will outlive us is the point, I think, really of the passage. So it's not just a pilgrim hope. It's a promise-fueled hope. It's hope in God's promise. Because isn't that exactly what Abraham seems to be doing here? People were normally buried. Still in our time, it's true. But certainly in the ancient world, they were buried in their homeland. It's why you might remember at the end of Genesis, Jacob, and subsequently, you know, from Joseph too, they're going to give commands while the people are in exile in Egypt, commands that their bones eventually make it back to this area of the promised land because that's the homeland. In other words, the promise outlives God's people. That so eternal is God's faithfulness. That Abraham knows that his promise about not just people, but God's promise about the place will extend far into the future. This is our home. I am buying a plot of land here because God is going to make this our homeland. And surely you know, so many thousands of years later, another cave becomes altogether significant to God's people. This cave of Machpelah, it was a place of praise. It was a place of songs. It was a place of remembrance for the ancient covenant people of Israel. But you remember the Lord Jesus Christ laid in a cave. And just as the cave at Machpelah was this deed, this title to the promise, if you will, is not the empty cave of Jesus Christ, the title to the promise that will outlive us. The first fruits of resurrection. The first fruits of the kingdom to come. The promise to come, which even Hebrews chapter 11 tells us Abraham is not looking just for that land. He's looking for the whole earth as the fulfillment of God's promise. So you might be listening to this today and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. I wonder if you have any promise or a word that you believe will outlive you. Uh, you might say, no, I really don't think that there's any particular truth that's going to outlive me. The world is just ever evolving. Uh, well, do know today from the authority of God's word that you have a promise that will outlive you. And it's a promise of judgment should you not turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ. It's the frightening, wrath-filled promise of an eternity apart from the king. But the good news of Abraham's true seed, Jesus Christ, is that anyone who turns from their sin and trusts in him, they get this deed, this right, this title that they can hold in their hands, that they can hold in their minds, that they can hold in their hearts, that I am on the way to the land of promise and resurrection. I am on the way to the place of eternal Rest, the place of eternal victory over sin, Satan, and suffering, death, and destruction, the place of eternal freedom, finality, and fullness, forgiveness in Christ's blood. A life lived here on earth, a life lived even in the face of death with the fullness of hope, as a pilgrim with the fullness of hope in Christ's promise, because after all, isn't it true that Jesus Christ is himself the promise? Thus, 
we can say Jesus Christ is himself our only hope in life and death. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that you would restore our hope in your salvation. Restore our joy in your redemption. In weeks of being away from one another, let us not be away from your promise. In weeks where we will not see each other physically, help us by faith to see Christ spiritually. Casting our trust upon him, casting our needs upon him, casting our worries and fears upon him. So that in the trying times and the testing times, even in the times of death, we still might be people who, yes, grieve, but do so with a heart that's full of hope. Hope in Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, in whose name we pray these things. Amen.